All right, so we're, we're going to do this cold open. We got to decide on it. So let's get opinions, Sarah. Okay. 60 seconds. Yeah. Um, so I really think that we should be extremely thoughtful and strategize how we should do the cold open. Um, I think we need to give everybody an equal opportunity to talk. I think that's really valid. Um, I also want to hear everybody's ideas because I think it's really important to hear the voice of the people, even pull our listeners maybe on what we should be doing because there's a really good opportunity here to really improve things. But, um, you know, we have such a great foundation. I think we should really uh, be thoughtful and strategize. Okay. Brian, uh, same question, 60 seconds. What this podcast needs is humor. Our humor is being taken away from us, and it's going elsewhere. It's going to other podcasts. I've seen it. I've seen it. You've seen it. It's, it's, we're not funny. We're not funny. I want to make this podcast funny again. Brian, j- just to clarify, if I may, Sarah, mm-hmm. are, you, are you suggesting that we somehow have lost our appeal to our listeners because we're not amusing any longer? No, I didn't not- say that. I never said that. I'm pretty no, I, no, clear. No, I never I'm said that. Sure, no. no, no, wrong, wrong, wrong. Listen, you big fat pig. I am saying that what this podcast needs is levity. Is levity. Okay? And I have the best levity. People tell me nobody does levity like I do. We need to bring more levity onto the podcast. Uh, Sarah, your reply. Well, you know, I want to point out what Brian said right there is that he just said that this podcast is not funny again. Well, frankly, I do not believe that. Not true. I believe in this podcast and what we can do. And I don't think that Brian has the experience to be able to say what we have, you know, what's in our favor or not. And so I really I really have to strongly disagree with Brian on this, um, you know, cold open topic. I just I really can't even believe he said that, you know. I built this podcast from nothing. You people know that. Many people have told me that. And, you know, then Crooked Sarah came on and she brought in her lies. She lies like nobody's business. Nothing you can say about that will change my opinion about that. Nothing she says is true. All right, all right, all right. All right. Yeah, I, it, let, let's, I don't let's, think so. Let's get back to the original question, which is what are we doing for the cold open? Uh, and I'm, I'm simply going to make an executive decision here. We are going with the Pizza Man skit. And no one ordered a pizza. I claim voter fraud. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Sarah Ashley. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I am Eric Brickmont. Wasn't that fun? It was a little fun. And all three of us are together again. I feel like we say that every few months. Because it happens every (laughs) Every few few months. months. Yeah. Um, a couple of our listeners were worried. In fact, one of our listeners will will share her voicemail at the end of the podcast. Uh, was really like generally generally worried because we hadn't released a new episode in over a month. And to our, you know, we will admit that in past years we have announced when we've taken a break. Yeah. And this year we didn't. Um. So you know, mea culpa for that. But at the same time, uh, Sean got married. Yeah. We're very excited about that. And, uh. We just, the reality was that we didn't have time for, he didn't have time to edit the episodes and we were all so wrapped up in getting ready to go travel to the wedding that we didn't have the ability to record episodes either. So we all just kind of genuinely, generally agreed on a break. Mm -hmm. I'm very sad. I did not get to attend. Yeah. Commitments here and financial limitations that prevented me from doing so. But I heard uh, through the other nerds that it was probably the sweetest, kindest, nicest, uh, 
sacrifice of a goat that really anyone's ever seen. I mean, it was really sentimental. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was really clever. I mean, the, the hotel slash casino slash convention center was really, really awesome. They laid out tarps all over mm-hmm. yeah. the chapel yeah. because yeah. goat blood stains pretty pretty seriously. And well, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially the drapes. So it it was really nice that they were pro- to provide that. Mm-hmm. And uh, they mm-hmm. also provided smocks for all the guests. Yeah. So that was awesome, too. Yeah. 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 Yeah, pretty reasonable too with the you know the candle lighting and everything like that. You know, normally they don't like so many candles because it'll set off a smoke alarm and whatnot. But they were pretty tolerant. And absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And the reception was fun. Mm-hmm. There was a Hyros Gamos ritual that yeah. happened. And yeah. the photos that I've seen of your depiction of of the beast, yeah. classic. They'll go down in history. Yeah, right? and like I said, the, and, and then the Hyros Gamos ritual was really spectacular. Um, everyone made their own custom masks mm-hmm. uh, for that, um, and everyone just. Took part in that, and that was that was spectacular. How long are we gonna keep this up? All right, <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen, there, there was absolutely nothing satanic related. But no, if not you've heard at all. Sean's and sense of humor, is not satanic. At if all. you've yeah. heard Sean's sense of humor before on on nerds on film, this all makes sense to you. Yeah. Um, and to our listeners, in which you know, goat sacrifice is a thing for you. Hey, we're not making fun of it. No, nope. just saying. Nope. Uh, no. Goats and orgies. It's a rocking wedding in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, uh, we were in Vegas. Sean um, married his lovely wife, Katie. It yeah, was yeah. a... Who looked beautiful. She oh, really looked absolutely. Beautiful it was a whole beautiful wedding. And um, it was Batman Batman elements throughout the whole wedding, which mm-hmm. was really fun. So, yeah, everybody had a really good time. And Eric was certainly missed. Mm-hmm. Mm. Speak not of it. It upsets me. Oh, okay. Well, then let's just dive right on into our topic, shall we, guys? Ooh, topics. I love them. Oh, wait a minute. We're doing a wheel episode. We don't have a wheel intro. Oh, no. Uh-oh. Well, I this think it's going to piss the wheel off. Yeah, it is. All right. Bring him in. Ladies and gentlemen, we would like to introduce... The Wheel of Presidential History. Normally, it's customary for us to stand yeah. when the Presidential History Wheel uh, enters the room, but unfortunately, our studio is too small, so we'll have to have <laughs> we'll just have to remain seated. Yeah, <laughs> we, we've all agreed to uh, lean slightly to the left, however. Yes, and yeah. it does. Um, and the wheel did come in with its own um, Secret Service, so let's just make sure that we acknowledge that. Uh, thank d- you guys for your service. Two smaller wheels wearing sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, very good. So, presidents, we've got them. Yeah, we're about to elect a new one. That's right. And uh, there's a lot of discussion happening right now, right in this moment, as this episode is releasing, before it's releasing, surely in a few weeks when we actually decide on who will be our next president for the United States. And uh, it has been a doozy. And I think that's to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. However... We have decided that there's a lot of conversation happening about that already. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All over social media. Mm-hmm. All over the internet. All so the get news. ready for the, the life of Donald Trump, everybody. No, <laughs> no, no. No, no, we're not doing that. Yeah. No, we decided that why not celebrate the elections? Uh, because it's not like we get to do this very often. Uh, mm-hmm. Celebrate the elections by talking about presidential history. Yeah. So. Yeah, which we did in 2012. We did just a... Uh, Kind of a loose fun facts about the presidency episode back then, and uh, we'll post that uh, at on an, or near election day as well. Yeah, this one will be a little more structured, though. We're gonna have a lot of cool new facts to talk about, uh, and there's all sorts of great little angles that we're gonna take from this. 
Brian is going to take us off with the very first one of these. Yeah, you need to go for your first spin there, Brian. Here we go. Oh, I wonder what it's going to give me. Let's find out. Oh, wow. Okay. The election of 1824. Oh. So we're going we're going back a ways. Yeah. We're going pretty far back. Yeah. And this is for the election of the sixth president of the United States. That's how far back we're going. Um, this is a really interesting time because in the early 19th century, I mean, we first off, we had not 10 years before this dealt with a, a war. Rather, kind of, kind yeah. of uh, mm-hmm. rather extreme war for America. Yeah. Well, we, well, we had the, revo- the revolution, but then Britain was kind of like, eh, maybe we should take it back again. And, you know, it was kind of the, the unimpressive sequel. Uh, but the War of 1812. War of 1812. we Yes, it was. But it was a very serious war because, for one, I mean, the White House was burned down. At least the inner shell was. The outer shell to this day remains, and it was eventually rebuilt. The white part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stayed, stayed in. There's actually, it's really fascinating. Some of the marble sculptures still have scorch marks mm. from the initial fire in nice. 1912. Uh, I think it was, well, I mean, not. it wasn't in 1812. I think it was 1813 that it happened. But um, No, the War of 1812 only happened in 1812, and that right. was it. Yeah, the War of 1812. It started on January 1st. Ended on December 31st. You know it. Yes. <laughs> it's very strict. But in, that, in all... Uh, in all truth, it actually ended in 1814. So there, there was that going on, and that was still fresh in everybody's minds. Uh, there was other things going on. You know, America was expanding. Uh, not very long before this, we had also uh, annexed Florida. from, and well, We didn't annex it. We won it in a war from Spain. Uh, and this will actually play a little bit, very ever so slightly, into this um, election. But the other, the other important thing to keep into mind is, politically speaking... America is only one party at this point. And we, we, that makes us kind of nervous now when we think of that, because when we think of one-party systems, we think of totalitarian uh, governments. And that was definitely not the case here. But what had happened was in the early, in this time period, the Whig Party had collapsed, um, which pretty much led to only one party, which was the Democratic-Republican Party, uh, which was, was officially established by Thomas Jefferson um, and is now technically in name the party that became the Democratic Party that we know today. Uh, but a lot has happened. A lot of ideology and platforms have changed. So technically it carries that history, but it is a very different party back then than the one we, than the Democratic Party of today. Uh, so, and that being said, because there was only one party, there was no primaries mm. for that. And besides that, primaries were not really a thing at that point. Mm-hmm. There was no, the parties would nominate their candidate and then they would finally have the general election, right? Right. Um, but how do you make a nominee in a system where there's only one party? That's not democratic at all. So they allowed anybody, basically, to, to run. And it essentially came down to there were four presidential candidates. Interesting. Yeah. And they were uh, John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson. J.Q. Yep. <laughs> yep. William Crawford and Henry Clay. Oh. Uh, okay. Mm. And, he's like, and you're like, ah, uh, who are those guys? I've heard of Henry Clay before. Uh, good for you, because most of us haven't. Um, I've heard of John Quincy Adams. Yeah, and keep in mind, mind you, these are all members of the same party. So Henry Clay uh, was uh, a congressman from Kentucky and was uh, serving as the Speaker of the House at this point in time. William Crawford uh, was the Treasury Secretary. Uh, Andrew Jackson 
was the uh, senator from Tennessee, a newly elected senator from Tennessee. Uh, he was a war hero from the, the War of 1812. Uh, and he was also the war hero from the first Seminole War. And the first Seminole War is the war where Spain lost Florida to the United States. And actually, after that period, he served as the military appointed governor of Florida, uh, as it turns out. So he had some executive experience. And then, of course, John Quincy Adams, uh, aside from being the son of President John Adams, uh, you know, in his own right, he was a, a lawyer. Uh, he was uh, a cell. He had been in, served in both the House and the Senate. And at this point in time, at the time of the election, he was the Secretary of State. And considerably more well-liked than his father. Well, yes. But I think this election may have actually ruined that. Um, well, so, let's also keep in mind, his father was really generally disliked by a lot of people. Yes. He, well, and he and his father even knew that. He knew that he was an unpopular person. Yeah. Um, the and embraced he, it. Yeah. But the fact that he won the the, uh, the election of 1800 is, uh, you know, uh, was as controversial as it was because he only won by three votes. Yeah. But that's not, we're not here to talk about John Adams. We're here to talk about John Quincy Adams. Uh, also interesting to, to note, both Adams and Jackson ran with the same running mate. They both had John C. Calhoun as their vice presidential candidate. <laughs> <laughs> and then Clay and Crawford had different candidates. So it's like, they used well. to do things a little differently back then. So yes, for, they did. for Calhoun, hey, 50-50. Yeah. Not, 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 not bad odds. Um, so what, what made this so controversial? Well, so first of all, because they're all in the same party, it really came down to regions, right? Uh, Quincy Adams being, or just, we'll just call him Adams at this point forward, because Quincy was his middle, was his, John Quincy was his first name. So, um, Adams call carried, yeah, Adams carried the East. Uh, Clay had parts of the West, and Crawford was popular in the Midwest, basically. And keep in mind, the when we're talking the West, we're the talking. The Midwest is also part of the East Coast today. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, when we're talking the West, we're talking about like west of the Mississippi River. Yeah. We're not talking about the the Pacific West like we're used to today. We're talking like I Ohio is considered the West at this point. Right. Yeah. So that being said, uh Jackson was actually the very popular candidate amongst the people. People loved him, but he was new to Washington. Like I said, he was a senator, but he had he was in his first term of uh after he was elected. So he was viewed as the outsider of the of the establishment. And because of that, the party didn't like him. But he was liked by the people. So when it came to election day, here's how the uh, the stats happened. Jackson took the popular vote by, by plurality. Uh, he also had a plurality of the electoral vote. He had 99 electoral votes. Adams had 84. He was a very close runner-up. Uh, Crawford had 41 and Clay had 37. Now, the Constitution dictates that popular vote... Well, it can influence the electoral vote. The electoral college must have a majority to in order to win the presidency. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. You cannot have a plurality in that case. So technically, no candidate won the election electorally. So constitutionally, that means that it goes to the House to choose, and then the Senate will the Senate will elect the vice president, the House will elect the president. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Clay was the Speaker of the House. So you would think that he could potentially, you know, broker a deal and gain the presidency, but he also was a smart man. He had the least number of votes electorally. So if he did that, there would have been pandemonium. So what he did instead is he talked to Adams, who, because he was the runner-up, it would still be conceivable that people would accept mm -hmm. him as president. 
So they made they he agreed to get his to use his poll to get the House to elect him as president in exchange for Clay being named the Secretary of State. That is exactly what happened. Mm. Mm. Uh, and uh, in 1824, I believe this was the last election that was, in fact, determined by the House of Representatives. Because um, there was a very close tie that happened, I think, shortly before this or shortly after this. Um, but this is one of the last significantly contentious re- uh, elections that were, was determined by Congress. What made this even worse is that the aftermath of that election was even though John Quincy Adams was elected the sixth president of the United States, uh, he couldn't get past the reputation that Jackson used to his advantage because he was popular yeah. with the people. Yeah. He had pull and he started a smear campaign from day one, basically saying that this is what Washington is like. Washington is corrupt. It's a corrupt system. Look what, look what's happened. And then he started saying like really, really bad, completely untrue things about John Quincy Adams. Um, one of them, which I thought is deserves being a note is that uh, because he, in one of his diplomatic positions, he had served as minister of Russia and he claimed a lie that he had uh, sold American virgins to the czar of Russia. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, and, and, and keep in mind at this point, you know, when you're dealing with uh, immigration from Europe mm-hmm. and you know the quote unquote native uh, Americans at this point, the naturalized Americans uh, not liking that, mm-hmm. anything that that could spread xenophobia spread like wildfire. Sure. So an anti-Russian sentiment, as it is, and adding on that that you're basically saying the president was uh, a pimp, uh, did not do well for him. So uh, suffice really, to say... Really, you think that would be popular in Washington, but okay. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. So suffice to say, uh, Adams was only a one-term president, much like his father. Yeah. Uh, Jackson, on the other hand, ran for re-election in 1828 and won by a landslide. Yeah. And, and then won re-election again in 1832. So. There you go. Yeah. Well, the other thing that uh, did not help... John Quincy Adams was his frequency to bathe in the nude in the Potomac, and that is not a joke. No, that I've heard. He used to wake up at five in the morning, get buck naked, jump in the Potomac, and enjoy it immensely. Yeah. And uh, and and quite to the horror of anyone who was walking by, because he was not an attractive man, uh, not unlike his father. And uh, I will say, though, it... it it definitely backfired against him in one particularly interesting instance. It's maybe my little fun fact for for JQA today. He was the very first president mm-hmm. to ever be interviewed by a female reporter. Oh, oh. Uh, the female reporter. Her name was Anne Royale, and she had uh, heard these stories of him and his habits to go out there and and bathe in the nude. And she took it to her advantage. She let him go out there, get in the water. And then hid his clothing and stood on the, the banks and said, I'm not leaving until you give me an interview. Nice. And he refused to leave the water. You know, the water's probably cold, so I understand. So he, got, he almost he refi- got hypothermia, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, no, he gave the interview <laughs> is how he eventually got his clothes back. So the very first uh, interview by a female reporter wow. was to a nude and, and cold uh, John Quincy Adams. Yeah. Well, I have one more to add to that. Uh Quincy Adams also happens to be the only president to, as an ex-president, um, also serve in Congress. He actually yes. served in the House um, after he left the president. And he's the only ex-president who's ever gone for re-elected office at the federal level. Hmm. And I may have lied when I said that was my only fun fact, because I have one more. <laughs> he is the word. very first president 
to have ever been photographed. Oh, mm. really? Now, he was not president at the time. Uh, this occurred many years later, uh, 20 or 20, 25 years later after his presidency, I think, shortly before he died, really just a few years before he died. Uh, but he was the very first president to be photographed. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That's a, that is really cool. Cool. Huh. Awesome. All that right. He's awesome. Eric. Hi. Your turn at the wheel. Ooh, I am so excited. Good. Let's give it a little spin, shall we? Oh, land. Uh, Where about land? Oh, now this 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 is very topical. I like this. Good job, Wheel. You you've done well so far. Your presidency uh, is is going smoothly. We'll see. We'll see <laughs> this how first one hundred days. Yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll see how the latter half of this goes. Uh, the topic, ladies and gentlemen is presidential debates. Ooh. Yeah. Right. Which we're in the thick of right now. Yeah, so. we are. Yeah. Yeah, we are. At the time of recording, yes. At and time the, at the time and, of release, And too. the time of release, too. Oh, I think, yeah, yeah we probably. should have the third one out at that yeah, time. Yeah, I think yeah. it's actually going to be just before the last... Uh, Depending on how the events yeah, of I think when this, this goes down, weekend the, the transpire. Last, <laughs> yeah, the, the last debate, I believe, will be airing the day after this gets released. Got it. Just, so, just for context yeah. on when we're recording this, just so you guys have an appropriate timeline... <laughs> This is we're recording right after Trump's interesting recordings have come out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're just gonna leave mm-hmm. it at that. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's had a couple, so we'll just say the one that involved grabbing women in certain ways. Yes. That's inappropriate. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So this is an interesting topic. Presidential debates in terms of official presidential debates and a, and a precedence and a cadence for having them is a relatively recent part of our history. It's only been around since 1960. Yeah, that was the first televised debate, wasn't it? That was the first official televised debate and the very first really, the one that where they would set the precedent for doing more of them. Before that, there were very few presidential debates. They were very few and far between. Uh, and, and they weren't like a formalized process at no. that point. And yeah. nothing on the radio either? Like There, there was uh, one in 1948. Okay. Uh, it was a radio debate that was held between Republican primary candidates at that time. Okay. And then the Republic and then the Democrats would actually go ahead and do the same thing in 1956. But we're talking about, you know, a pretty big span of time here. And uh, none of them were ever set up, you know, the same. They're all a little different. In fact, the very first one didn't even involve moderators. And uh, <laughs> it was three hours long. Were they just like picking out topics out of a hat and then talking about it? Was it like Harvard <laughs> debate rules? Like how did that work? So the very first presidential debate was in night or sorry, 1858 between Abraham Lincoln and then Senator Stephen A. Douglas. Uh, and this was the first of seven three hour long debates. Oh, that's wow. a marathon debate. And these were face to face. These were no moderators involved. But with it was an them. It was an audience, and that and that was it. And the way this would work is that the the opening candidate would have one hour to present a speech. Oh my god! Which was then followed by his opponent, who had an hour and a half rebuttal. Oh my god! Which was then ended by the first candidate, who had a thirty a, minute, a half hour response. Oh my god! So if you thought watching the presidential debates was boring now. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, they're quite interesting now. Yeah. But back then it was, uh, it was a test of endurance. Yeah. But this is also 1860 we're talking about where there was no radio. There was no. Yeah. What else were you going to do with your time? You're either going to read 
maybe listen to music if there was a person in the family who could play an instrument. Right. You know, or go to the theater if you could afford to. So, I mean, free public debate? Sure. We'll hear, we'll hear a couple of windbags talk for... But, I, you know, there's no specificity of a bathroom break, but I'm assuming there had to have been. No, there had to have been. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know. Or it's just theater rules where people could just, like, leave. Right. And they just have to be caught up. But where things get very interesting is in the modern age, and that's mm. when yeah. we have the advent of television. Oh, in yeah. In 1960, television had exploded. There were TVs and almost Literally, every American ex- household. They all just exploded they, everywhere. They, they were like Samsung Galaxy Note 7. <laughs> blowing up all over the place. <laughs> Samsung oh is not a sponsor of this podcast. Definitely not. And never will be. <laughs> not after that. No, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> well, and what's, you know, having this televised debate and everything like that, I mean, some people say it really gave Kennedy a leg up because he's just so darn cute. Well, that's what it broke down to in the end is the fact that JFK came into this debate very prepared, mm-hmm. very healthy, and stood out so differently than his opponent, Richard Nixon. Uh, in, in many different ways. Not only was he younger and more, we'll just call it more attractive. I mean, you know, Richard Nixon was more not vibrant. exactly. Yeah, he was a little bit of like a. Viral. Like, kind of like a broomstick with very strange <laughs> appendages just and thrown at keep in mind, this is younger Nixon, too. This is young Nixon, that's right. Yeah. Younger, and he had already been vice president. He was actually, at that time, I think he was Eisenhower's vice president, too. Yeah. So he so, had a lot of experience. So 70 million people turned in to watch this on September 26th, 1960. That is a huge number of people for the, for 1960 to tune in and watch a television yeah. program like this. So ev- essentially every TV was on in the United States and Nixon had been very ill leading up to this, uh, had been hospitalized briefly and had lost a lot of weight. He had had a terrible stomach flu before this. So he was very sick and he came on stage and the, the 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 contrast couldn't be any more clear. He was pale. He was uh, kind of got. He had these very, you know, dark circles. Dark circles. Yeah. He didn't look healthy at all. And to make it worse, he was wearing kind of a light gray suit, which made his already very pale complexion look even worse. And he was also sweating a lot, wasn't he? Well, he was sweating a lot for several reasons. Mm-hmm. One, he had these lights beaming down on him, which were heating him up. He was also getting over this terrible illness, so he was running a small fever, and. He had also grown in this rather thick uh, five o'clock shadow that they tried to cover up with makeup, which had the horrible uh, effect of them melting off of his face. Oh my god! During the latter half of the debate, Ugh. and and when so you know I've been in debates before, I've been in front of people lecturing before, I've been in scenarios where I've been put on blast in front of a couple hundred people and needed to talk to them. Mm-hmm. And even under the best of circumstances, you're getting a little pity. You know, you're getting a little sweaty down there. Your, oh, your pits yeah. are just not looking too good, and you're and you're aware of it, and you're mm-hmm. conscious of it, and, then and that you start makes it thinking worse. About it, yeah, yeah. And it screws with your head, man. I had this one situation. I was lecturing to about sixty people. I had one armpit totally fine. The other armpit, antiperspirant crapped out on me. Wow. I had literally one pit going on. It was bizarre. <laughs> I had to, I was and I was kind of obstructing it a little bit with my hand and using the other hand to make my gestures. Needless to say, I had my Nixon moment, and it and I I persevered. Unfortunately, Richard Nixon did not. He also just failed to look presidential, and he failed to really reply uh, in a way that would be appealing to the to the audience. Mm. And it it hurt him severely in that election. Oh, I'm sure. And was that severely. the only debate they did for that election? That was the that was the first one. 
Yeah, three more debates uh, were held between the candidates, but okay. he just never he never, never recovered, recovered from it. It was yeah. it was very very bad. It's okay. He never really recovered from his presidency either. No, he had a bit of a rough time. Yeah, not not exactly remembered terribly well um, in American history, but that's how it goes. Even still, he did do some good things. He's I think he even established like the Environmental Protective Protection Agency. So yeah, he did he, that. Yeah, at the same time, you know, every president has. Because, I mean, obviously he was eventually elected. Like, every president has things that they are remembered for. Mm -hmm. And if they are remembered as a bad president, no, every president has done good things. Every president's done terrible things. Every president has done good things as well. Yeah. Um, It's interesting because today we think of George W. Bush as one of the worst presidents in in history. He actually really doesn't even come close to a couple other names. Um, But because it's so fresh in our minds, we we only think of it that way. And now... It's coming out. It's people are remembering the good things he did when he was a president. That it's almost like the, the it's starting to shift a little bit, and then just I find that fascinating to to see. I wonder if Nixon will eventually have some of the better things he did remembered. I mean, there is no way he, the mire of his him having to resign and Watergate and Watergate will well, ever leave his his legacy. But. Now, now that he's dead and has been for some time. It's very likely that um, it's very likely a lot more information and the negative is going to actually come out. Mm. Yeah. And I have a feeling that the next 15 to 20 years might actually see uh, some pretty shocking stuff come out about him. Who knows? There was a lot that was going on. He was hyper paranoid and he had um, he had a very negative outlook on life and he made sure that everyone around him felt it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure there were, is a lot still to be revealed. He had a he had a rough time in the White House, and so yeah. did the White House staff, apparently, according yeah. to a lot of literature that's been already released. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So even still, even though he looked terrible and managed to more or less answer the questions, but not in the greatest way, he did not screw up nearly as bad as Gerald Ford. Oh, Ford. Oh. Only man to have been appointed but never served, but never been elected the pr- vice president or president. Yeah. Yeah. This man, uh, <laughs> Gerald Ford is interesting. He's another one-term president who had a bit of a rough time. Yeah. And he had a very difficult time fighting his image, his image mm-hmm. as a bumbling buffoon. Yep. Uh, a man who falls downstairs mm-hmm. on Air Force One, a man who doesn't seem to have a good idea of what geopolitical climates actually look like in the world. And it hurt him severely in his uh, in his debate. And people knew this because when him and Carter, Jimmy Carter, were, were going into this election, Carter had a, uh, he had, <laughs> he had a chance to really do some serious damage. And it was Gerald Ford's prep team who knew that, including mm-hmm. uh, the then uh, chief of staff, Dick Cheney. Hmm. Yeah. Dick Cheney's giving you advice you better watch out. Uh, <laughs> Does he have a gun? <laughs> the, eventual, the eventual vice president. He refused States. to take Ford hunting with him. <laughs> I, I wonder why. Uh, so in, in their debate, um, Gerald Ford was very famously asked what he thought of the situation in Eastern Europe. Obviously, the Soviet Union was in full force at this time, and the Helsinki Accords uh, more or less could have represented this con- this conceding to that dominance of, yeah. of Europe, that we gave up. We're not going to bother any longer. We've got Russia there, and they're there to stay. <laughs> His reply is so bizarre. Mm-hmm. You can go and find clips of it on YouTube. 
And it makes no sense. So I'm going to read it to you verbatim. Okay. And you're going to just judge it for yourself. There is no Soviet domination in Eastern Europe. And there never will be under a Ford administration. And... Uh, and the moderator, oh when you watch God. him, he's like he's like smiling from ear to ear. He's like, what the hell did you just say? <laughs> How could you possibly say that? And Ford, you know, he, he questions him on it. He really does. And he, and he comes back um, and he says, each of those countries is independent and autonomous and has its own territorial integrity. What? And the United States does not concede that these countries are under the domination of the Soviet Union. What was he thinking? The Soviet Union... Wait, wait, what? That this is... happened on live television, oh. and it handed Jimmy Carter the election. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. And thus started the president of dumb presidential candidates. <laughs> oh, I mean, God. And, 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 and nobody's really sure why he said it. I mean, he's so disconnected. From, from the reality of what was going on in Europe. And it was shocking to the American people. And he never recovered from it. It was, it was, it was the nail in the coffin. Yeah. And it goes to show how these presidential debates have huge turning points. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and we see it again with his successor, with Jimmy Carter in 1980. Jimmy Carter, <laughs> who was going up against Ronald Reagan, a cowboy... A cowboy who had been the governor of California. Yep. And was also an, an actor, actor. Famed former actor, president, yes. And former president of the Scenic Green Actors Guild as well. And of course, yeah. one Ronald of the most... Ronald Reagan? The actor? Damn it! You stole it! <laughs> Damn it! I was going to say it! Sorry. <laughs> of course, we're referencing Back to the Future. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy Carter is... His, his debate is unique in that, well, later on, we would actually find uh, three candidates for president debating together... The first time that it would ever happen. The opportunity also occurred during his um, during his presidency, when uh, Carter and Reagan would be joined on stage by John Anderson, uh, who was a, a liberal Republican who was running for president as a third party and actually managed to get enough votes to be invited into a presidential debate. So he pulled up well enough to get that. Yeah, okay. this would have been the first situation in which three major candidates for president were debating together on stage. However, Carter, who saw him as a threat and taking votes away from him, opted out to not attend. What? He chose not to attend the debate. And as a result, Ronald Reagan and Anderson got on stage and debated each other. A A candidate who very likely would have never been able to secure the presidency. He, he, he had votes, but you only yeah. have to have something like 15% of the vote or something like that. I don't remember right. exactly what 15% it is. 15% of the polls to, yeah, to, to be, be invited. invited. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and he handed it away. And, um, and they made these, these, they were actually very kind about it. They could have torn him to pieces. If it was the modern age, they certainly would have. But um, there was one quote from Anderson that was very damning. And very clearly, the message was received. And it says, President Carter was not right a few weeks ago when he said that the American people were confronted with only two choices and only two men and with only two parties. And, and then he remarks, I respect 
Reagan, he, he gestures to Reagan, for showing, uh, for showing up tonight. And so he was essentially just highlighting the fact that there were two people who were contending for president, and they were the two people on the stage, and that Jimmy Carter wasn't even an option. Yeah. So sometimes it's not what you say, but it's how you say it. And it was very damning. And Reagan was a very charismatic, very popular sure. uh, choice for president. In the debates, Reagan himself glowed. He did a great job. And four years later, in 18, 1984, he did a great job again. Against Dukakis, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and that was one heck of a, of a battle. Uh, Dukakis could have taken the presidency, but he was marred with all sorts of scandal and problems throughout his entire run, and it, he, was, uh, he was not a great choice. Yeah. Uh, Reagan dominated in those debates and, and did a phenomenal job and came out, even though he was the oldest uh, person at that point in history to run for president. He was 71 years old. Mm-hmm. You know, he's running for re-election. And there were questions in the media in particular, was he too old to be a viable president? And he was asked this during the debate. Excuse me, he was 73. 73, pardon me. I'm just checking my notes again. And <laughs> I'm, I'm going to quote him here. It says, I'm not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. Yeah. Nice. So he comes out with this razor sharp uh-huh. wit and shows, I might be 73, but... I'm I'm on top of it. I got this. Yeah. yeah. And it and it hurt Dukakis. Well, bad. that was also super important because he at times was shown as being very tongue-tied. So the fact that he could come up with a zinger like that yes. on stage in that moment was was incredibly important. Well, he was also an actor and he was well rehearsed and mm-hmm. he spent a lot of time in his debate prep and he did a very good job and it showed. Yeah. I kind of wish that Lloyd Benson who was the VP candidate for Dukakis was the one who was actually running. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did some interesting stuff. Uh, <laughs> there is a debate between uh, Michael Dukakis and... Now that I'm thinking about Brian, you, 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 how dare you? You totally threw me off. Dukakis was against uh, Bush Sr. In, in 88. Yeah, my apologies. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. The The whole point is that that it was um, uh, Walter uh, Mondale. Walter, Mo- right. Walter. Against Ronald yes. Reagan. And again, Reagan... Continue to come out fine. So, just a quick edit right here, live, ladies and gentlemen. We're fact we're fact checking the podcast tonight. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, (laughs) fact checking it live. Politifact. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Uh, It's okay. Lloyd Benson, however, who was the vice presidential candidate with Michael Dukakis, who was against Bush Senior in 1988, not 1984. really did quite well during his debates and not surprising considering he was debating against Dan Quayle. Now, (laughs) (laughs) little Danny Quayle, let's just say he wasn't exactly the uh, brightest crayon in the box. Got a lot of crap. Uh, and some From of it was potato. <laughs> well, some of it was actually deserved as well. Some of it was definitely not terribly fair, but in his vice presidential debate, uh, he really got put in his place. Yeah. Dan Quayle was comparing himself to JFK. Ooh. Saying that uh, his youth and experience was matching that of John Kennedy in his time when he was running for president. And this did not sit well at all with Benson, who had served with Jack Kennedy. Mm-hmm. And I'll quote him. Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. And the whole crowd 
ignores the rules and the whole place explodes. Oh, I'm sure. And uh, and Quail was quick to reply. You know, he says that was really uncalled for. It was really uncalled for. And then Benson just looks at him again and says, you know, I think you are so far apart in the objectives you chose for your country that I do not think the comparison was well taken. So he was, he was, he set himself up for yeah. absolute failure. And that. it's, it's really kind of, uh, kind of fun when you think about it, because the vice presidential deba- debates, they're essentially for show. They only get one. And it's really so that you can get, understand what the person who is the running mate feels, sounds like and feels like, but at the same time, it has, it, I mean, I don't know if it really has much of an impact on the overall results of the election itself. Well, you'd be surprised. I mean, this is the person who, if the president is unable to serve, will assume the role of president. People want to know what that number two spot is going to look like. That's very true. On that same token, Sarah Palin performed very, very well in the debate with Joseph Biden back in 2008. So She did. Yeah. She didn't do terribly well in the media after that, however. No, she did not. That. She dug her own grave. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but that is uh, that is not what we're here to talk about. I do want to briefly mention, though, again, George H.W. Bush... Herbert Walker, one-term president, okay, did did well for himself for that first four years, but the economy was really against him, mm-hmm. and he was definitely seen as somebody who was disconnected with the American people, that the recession was going on, and he had no plan to fix it and had no intention to do so, and that was only made worse in his town hall debate with uh, good old Bill Clinton. So, Billy, uh, Bill Clinton, for all that Bill Clinton is... Uh, was very young and very charismatic in 1992 and was doing quite well for himself on the campaign trail. And uh, the debates only continue to highlight that as George Bush Sr., while taking a question, decided to check his watch during the debate because it had been going on for far too long, in his opinion. And it was all televised, all while Bill Clinton is sitting there very attentively watching and, and listening to the question. And uh, again, it just hurt him very bad because wow. it came off as being very disconnected. And he did not compare to Bill Clinton in his ability to really answer and answer clearly mm-hmm. and concisively and, and sympathetically. You know, they were being asked pr- pretty serious questions that were very similar to the debates that were going on uh, in 2008 when we had a recession going on as well. And so uh, Bill Clinton came out on top of that and, and did uh, pretty well in those debates and eventually ended up becoming president. There you go. I will say one last one, more of an honorable mention. It's not really too bad, in my personal opinion. And that was with George W. Bush in 2004. Mm. Now, in his debates, uh, he got a lot of crap on the internet right after that because it appeared there was this bulge in his in his suit in the back. It was his mic pack, wasn't it? Yeah, it was his mic pack, but it had been placed very awkwardly. Yeah. And so the the rumors that was started online is that he was getting fed replies oh. through a secret oh. microphone that was oh separate because he should have been wearing his mic pack down on his belt like Normal everyone else people. normally See, would. If I were a Republican spin doctor at that point, I would have had said it was a tumor so that Republican Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger goes, it's not a tumor <laughs> at the very end. He just comes out running on stage, shakes him. It's not a tumor. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, George W. Bush was not being fed lines as far as we know. I don't I don't think so. Nah. No, I, I don't yeah. think so. It's, it's one of those funny little conspiracies things that get started. Anyhow, it does, I hope, help to highlight the fact that uh, – 
presidential debates do matter yeah. and can make an impact, and particularly in close presidential races, as I hope I've been able to help highlight for you folks today. It certainly awesome. does. Thank you, sir. Sarah, you are up at All the wheel. All right, it is my turn. Let me go ahead and give it a spin. After this commercial break. Oh, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, we have commercials now? Right. No, we don't. We oh, don't. Giving we an don't. actual Ooh. spin. We don't. I just... I got scared. It was, his response was so long we needed to throw in a commercial break. That's all I was... All right, and it has landed on... Ooh female presidential candidates. Shocker. Well, I mean, the wheel really knows me. What can I say? <laughs> well, it's very topical considering. It is very topical considering because, I mean, Hillary is the first presidential nominee of a major party. Yeah. And, and we have to make that put that qualifying yeah. in there. And so we want to, you know, obviously give credit where credit is due, but there were a lot of women who came before her, and I think we should um, really give them a moment and, yeah. and honor them because they helped pave the way to get us to this point. Sure, so, absolutely. Um, actually, and the first person I'm going to mention was not actually a presidential candidate herself. Mm. Um, Jesse Benton Fremont uh, was married to John C. Fremont, who ran in 1856. And she herself was extremely powerful in her own right. She was um, a writer and an activist who opposed slavery. And um, she was campaigning very hard uh, for her husband and with her husband, like right alongside him, that the campaign slogan actually became Fremont and Jesse too. And so people mm, were kind of like... That's cool. Kind of saying that you were going to get a two for one. Um, if you, a strong first lady. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, and that's like the same kind of thing that Bill Clinton said when he was running with Hillary yeah. and things that have been said about Barack and Michelle Obama. Right. Um, well, and also the original dream team, uh, FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt. Exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. Though at this point, first lady wouldn't, wasn't a title that was used. But right. She was Madam President, actually, interestingly enough. At yeah. that point. Was she so, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Madam President was, was the proper way to address the wife oh, of the that's president. that's very funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or Mrs. President, yeah. too, either way. Now we just say, yeah. now we just say FLOTUS. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds... Wrong. Horribly right? inappropriate. Right? POTUS, SCOTUS, FLOTUS. I, I, FLOTUS? Like, yeah. First, First Lady, Lady of the United States. States. I know, but <laughs> no. How does it... These things have arisen in the that, past few that years. That should disqualify POTUS, in my right. Personally, add the A at the end, so it's FLOTUSA. FLOTUSA. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like prescription medication, doesn't it? Is your presidential candidate too hard on the on the ears and in the eyes? Flotuza. Okay. <laughs> wow. Anywho, uh, moving right along. Um, the funny thing is, is actually when we get the first woman to ever run for president in the United States, it was long before women were allowed to vote. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but nothing ever said that a woman, woman couldn't run for office, though. But no. It was implied. That- yeah. It was implied. Yeah, yeah. So this was um, Victoria Woodhull in 1872, um, and she actually ran as a candidate under the Equal Rights Party, so like kind of a minor third party, and she was a, a suffragette and a total champion for equal rights. And um, I'm, she also was a, a total advocate for people to be able to marry and divorce and have kids on their own terms. Free love. Yep. Yeah. And wasn't Frederick Douglass, wasn't she under, wasn't that her running mate? That was uh, a later one. Yeah. Oh, okay. Or no, I, it may have been this one, but he never publicly acknowledged the the nomination. Oh, got it. Um, <laughs> okay. But she basically was kind of a loose cannon and just really did it on her own. Okay. Um, hmm. And uh, And what was really interesting about it is that even though there, she was getting public support from fellow, fellow suffragettes, um, they weren't necessarily voting for her. I mean, they couldn't. 
um, and any suffragette that showed up at the pool at the polls was getting arrested. Um, but Susan B. Anthony, when she cast her illegal vote, didn't actually vote for her, even though she publicly applauded her for making runs. But really, um, but yeah, Susan B. Anthony voted Republican. Ah, yeah, hmm. interesting. Um, well, makes sense at the time. Yeah, Republicans and, and Democrats were kind of ideologically yeah, 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 flipped. Yeah. <laughs> they were flipped. Um, and also, um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton um, was also pretty publicly supportive of what Woodhull was doing. And Woodhull ran a few times, um, even though, you know, she really wasn't allowed to, but they still tried. So, um, and it was really interesting because I think Woodhull was also, Woodhull was trying very hard when she was trying to um, have Frederick Douglass be her vice president. She was trying to unify the two movements um, because there was a lot of separation at that point when black men received the ability to vote, but women didn't. Mm -hmm. Women of, of no, you know, none. Of all colors. Yeah, of all colors. Yeah. Couldn't vote. So um, she was trying to reunite those two causes mm -hmm. in, in civil rights. Um, but uh, it didn't really quite pan out for her. Um, she did try again um, in uh, 92, and she was getting a little bit more traction at that point. Um by uh, she was nominated the presidential candidate by the National Women's Suffragettes Nominating Convention, um, and Marietta Stowe was nominated to be her vice president. Hmm. Um, so for those of us who've dreamed about a, a Clinton and Warren ticket, <laughs> this was kind of like the precursor version of that. Interesting. Um, yeah, and then in 1884, um, uh, Belva Ann Lockwood also ran. Um, she was also. Um, attached to the equal um the equal rights party um and she was really interesting because um she actually became the first woman to appear as a candidate on official ballots so she had a little bit more traction and was actually kind of again before women were allowed to vote and she actually appeared on ballots which was interesting um but uh newspapers were completely insulting to her making sexist comments of course um yeah yeah some people were warning that it was going to be a dangerous form of petticoat rule if she actually got voted oh, to be God. president so um and she got approximately four thousand votes so but i she, mean that's i'm actually i'm in, i'm impressed given the climate and given the time period i'm i'm still impressed yeah, yeah and what's really interesting about that too is uh there's a rumor that um there was actually voter fraud and that there were more votes cast for her and quite possibly a yeah. substantial number and that some yeah. were being thrown out as false false yeah. votes so mm. uh fast forward a little bit we kind of get our first uh legitimate candidate no, no no we're not even there yet we're kind really? of more at a you know like when we when we say that uh it should be like stewart and colbert for 2016 kind uh -huh. of thing? like the comedy duo but they are saying what we're all really thinking. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, in 1940, uh, Gracie Allen actually kind of made a poll <laughs> for president <laughs> as a joke. Really? Um, yeah, of the Burns and Allen duo. If you guys have, if you guys remember them. 40 in 1940. Or oh, I, I grew up listening to that. Okay, so, you <laughs> know. so it would have been legal. It would have been legal for her to do it at this point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and what was really interesting about it is it was kind of uh, it came up as a prank on the Burns and Allen comedy radio show. Um, and so <laughs> he, it was just really funny because people were like, yeah, do it. Like, cause, and if you guys know anything about Gracie Allen, like her shtick was that she played the dumb woman Yeah. to, to George Burns's straight man. Yeah. So, um, you know, she was the one who was making all the gags and stuff like that. And, 
Um, Which generally means that's the smartest person in the yeah, room. Probably, yeah. It's very funny. George and Gracie as, as you know, first lady and or first first or pres or president and first gentleman. Yeah, something like that, right? And uh, I mean, and she would basically what they do is they took it, took it on their little vaudeville routine where they were traveling. Um, on a quote-unquote campaign trail doing some of their acts, and then she would do a bunch of stump speeches. And, uh, you know, then she would kind of throw out her little gracieisms and say things like, everybody knows a woman is better than a man when it comes to introducing bills into the house. Huh? <laughs> um, or we ought to be proud of the national debt. It's the biggest in the world. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, yeah, so that was just a, a nice little silly <laughs> footnote, I think, in the run for <laughs> run for presidents. Um, however, um, it was actually in 1964 when we get another legitimate candidate. So it's okay. been quite some time uh, since 1884 was the last one, right? Yeah. Um, or the last firsts, I should say. There were a few like minor ones in between, but we're talking about significant ones. Fair. Um, and this is Margaret Chase Smith, and she ran on the Republic t Republican ticket in 1964 against Barry Goldwater. Mm, um, yeah. Yeah. And she became the first woman to ever receive more than one vote at a major party convention. In fact, she got 27. Damn right. <laughs> there were some people who really did not like Goldwater. Yeah. But... Yeah. And those were 27 of them. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure she had a lot more supporters, but they couldn't, for whatever reasons they made up in their mind, they couldn't. Delig as a delegate, they couldn't vote. On the yeah, for it. yeah. I mean, and she did lose every primary in the election that as long yeah. as she stayed in. So, yeah. um, but I will also want, I do want to point out that she was the first member of the Senate to oppose uh, Joe McCarthy. Oh, nice. So, yeah. So she, awesome. yeah. So she really, a, a very important figure, I think. Sure, um, sure. To really keep in mind. Yeah, and the Republican Party actually, I think, has been doing a better job of having female candidates than the Democratic Party has. Because Elizabeth Dole ran at one point. Yeah, 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 Elizabeth Dole ran at one point. I mean, and let's not forget, like, Michelle Bachman and Carla Fiorina and, right. um, and other people. So, yeah. no, there Her were... campaign was, Elizabeth Dole is not Bob Dole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and then 1972, so now 100 years from when the first woman uh, ran for president... Now we have the first African-American woman and the first Asian-American woman to run for president. Mm, right so, on. So uh, the African-American woman was uh, Shirley Chisholm, and she was also the first black woman ever elected to Congress in oh, the United right States. Oh, right on. Okay. So, um, so she really – and she took her bid all the, and her campaign all the way to the DNC. So that was actually really impressive, and she was um, a really great political thinker, and she was – she was really, really progressive. And um, there's one quote that she has where she said of her own campaign, you can go to that convention and you can yell, women power, here I come. You can yell, black power, here I come. The only thing those hard-nosed boys are going to understand at that convention, how many delegates you got. She was like super practical and was like yeah. super focused on how she was approaching it. She's like, I, yes, I'm black. Yes, I'm a woman. That is, you know, those are facts. However, it really comes down to the delegates and the vote. So let's do this. Um, and uh, and it was really interesting. She ended up getting um, uh, to win 152 votes um, wow. at the DNC. Wow. So so it was a it was a good run for her. Um, and then actually, so then the first Asian American woman um, is uh, Patsy Takamoto Mink. 
And what's interesting about her, she was actually the um, first woman elect, the first minority woman elected to Congress, um, she, representing the state of Hawaii. So before the first African American woman, but long before that, we had the first minority woman. It was an wow. Asian American woman, and it was it was Patsy Ming. That was a big deal because I'm sure she was the first non-white rep. From Hawaii, she was the first get... rep from Hawaii. I oh, think. she was. Oh, she was the first rep. I think oh, okay. she was the first rep from Hawaii. Period. Oh, so we're talking fifty. Okay, fifty nine. Yeah, Hawaii yeah. hadn't been a state for that long. Yeah, very yeah, true. Yeah. Fair. yeah. Okay, fair. It's kind of the new fair kid point. On the block. Yeah. That was my Dan Quayle moment. And uh, and she was actually and she ran um, as an anti-Vietnam War candidate on the Democratic ticket, um, but received only two percent of the votes. So she yeah. dropped out pretty quickly. Okay. Um, Shirley Chisholm uh, went further, but. Once um, Shirley and uh, Patsy Mink dropped out, they both supported George McGovern to to mm. be the nominee. Um, and another really cool thing about Mink is that she was actually the principal author and sponsor of Title IX. Yeah. So um, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. She ended up getting a lot of accolades after she um, passed away. Uh, George W. Bush actually renamed um, the Higher Education Act to the Patsy T. Mink Equal Opportunity and Education Act. Mm. And President Obama awarded her a posthumous uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom. Awesome. For her oh. hard work. Very so cool. Uh, also in 1972, though, it was a very active year for women. Yeah. Um, Linda Jenis was running and she ran under the Socialist Workers Party. She was a dedicated wow. communist and Marxist. And she was specifically focused on challenging the two-party system. Wow. So Which she I firmly believe in. So she was a little bit of a Bernie before Bernie. Yeah. Um except she had the opposite problem where people were cr criticized Bernie for being too old. She was criticized for being too young. In fact, she was really too young and was under 35, so there was oh. no way in hell she was going to be president anyway. <laughs> but she still tried to run. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, You know, I got to say, I know a lot of 35-year-olds that mm -hmm. I would not want to be president. Oh, sure. And older. Yeah. And I know a lot of younger folks who actually would do a pretty damn decent oh, job yeah. at it. Absolutely. I mean, it stands to reason that even though the the, the age is 35 is the, the minimum, no man or woman has ever been elected to president with that. In fact, I think JFK was the youngest, and he was 45. Yeah. And o o President Obama was only... Just a year older or two mm -hmm. years older or something yeah, like that. So yeah, so he was the second youngest man yeah. uh, elected to the presidency. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, but regardless, uh, she received over 80,000 votes, and she was featured on the ballot in 25 states. Wow. So she actually made a pretty good point considering That's that. That's a big deal. Considering yeah. she was under 35 and yeah. considering she was a Marxist. Yeah. So and considering it was the 70s. Yeah. 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 Um, I do also want to give a shout out to uh, Geraldine Ferraro, who was uh, nominated as VP in 1984. Um, and For the Democrats. For the Democrats with uh, Walter Mondale. Right. And then Sarah Palin, of course, in 2008. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, she was the first Republican woman, I think. Yeah. Nominated. yeah. Yeah. But so that was, I mean, that was a big deal, too, because it was somebody else that put her name in, too, and, yeah. and had nominated her on a major party ticket. And that, there's a big difference between that, too, where you have the people who actually get pulled in, who are nominated by their peers, Right. Yeah. Versus people who are like women who are just trying to make a push for it, you know? Sure. So um, sure. I think that was kind of a kind of a big moment um, for them. And um, 
And actually, what was really interesting, because um, Ferraro supported Hillary Clinton in 2008, mm. and she, when she was um, doing an interview, she said, I didn't cry when I voted for myself in 1984, but when I went into that booth and I looked at Hillary's name, I began to well up now thinking, of, I, and I'm beginning to well up now thinking about it. It felt like Susan B. Anthony was standing beside me saying, pull that lever, which sounds mm. so stupid, but I felt the struggle for women's rights, and it just smashed me. So very, very interesting that she... Really wow. deeply felt the yeah. honor uh, and and what it means, I think, the significance of what it means to be a woman in this game. Yeah. You know? Well, the very sad truth of it is that pretty much all presidential candidates eventually get forgotten. Yeah. A, a large number of them really mm-hmm. do. If they don't become president, they kind of f- disappear and they're very topical for the moment. And then you more or less forget about them. And it's very sad when that happens to these women who are running for the first time because mm-hmm. it is a big deal. Yeah. It is very important and it is very unprecedented in their times. And mm-hmm. yet, even still, you're reading off these names and I have to shamefully admit that... You haven't heard of most I, of them. I haven't heard of most of them. Yeah. And, and I know that part of it is the fact that, yes, they are presidential candidates and that's true. That mm-hmm. There's a lot of male presidential candidates who... Who are these people? I don't know. I don't remember yeah. these people at all. But uh, it's still too bad that we haven't had mm-hmm. more precedents for this and that mm-hmm. we haven't awarded more um, more recognition yeah. to the women who are on the list. Yeah. And, you know, just to kind of scan through more names, uh, Carol Mosley Braun in 2004, Elizabeth Dolik we talked about in 2000. Um, you know, and I do want to point out Carly Fiorina being the only woman to run on the Republican ticket, the, you know, in this election cycle. So... You know, we're we're gaining some traction. You see you're seeing more women there, which is amazing. Um, but you know, where there's the anxiety of influence for a lot of males who, you know, feel like they have to live up to a long legacy. We have the anxiety of lack of influence and we're having yeah. to to pave the way ourselves. And so yeah. um, but you know, if there's any inspiration to be had here <laughs> Yeah, and and whomever the first woman president will be. The enormous pressure that is on her shoulders. Oh, yeah. For one, dealing with the sexism of the system mm-hmm. that will um, most assuredly be against her when she takes office and in her first term. And just the responsibility of setting a precedent mm-hmm. for what do we value. Because ultimately, it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter that she's a woman. It, what matters is what they are as a person and what they deliver as a as a politician mm-hmm. yeah but ultimately the president they will set for future women presidents is the yeah is i the mean challenge. there's a huge thing of if you if you can see it you can be it right mm-hmm. and we there's a lot of little girls out there who still need to see it yeah so agreed yeah maybe i'll have a future female president in my family maybe i've got four four <laughs> possibilities <laughs> yeah there. start working on their debate skills now there you go oh they're trust me they're they're my children they're gonna be just fine (laughs) yeah i'm sure they'll be fine okay well i think that means it's my turn again isn't it all right here we go oh this is exciting i can't wait to hear what it says oh the election of 1876 the centennial election he just can't get out of the 19th century. No, he really I can't. Loves the 1800s. Well, you guys are bringing it for the 20th. That's true. And That's the true. late 19th. So I got to give you props. I'm going to bring it up from the 19th century. But... Brian's doing it old school. <laughs> doing it old. <laughs> what, what? Um, <laughs> he just rides up on his unicycle. What's up? <laughs> um, Velocipod. Thank you. 
Okay, here we go. Uh, the election of 1876, this is actually considered the most contentious presidential election in United States history. Um, we're not being hyperbolic here. We're no. not. Um, it is by, it is scholarly agreed upon that this is the, the worst it got. 2000 got close, but this got even worse. So uh, who were the contenders? We have uh, Governor Samuel Tilden of New York, uh, or, and he was the governor of New York at that time. And then Rutherford B. Hayes. Mm. Now, history tells us we know how this this election goes. But, sure. Wait, how? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, let's, but let's follow the, the story. At this point, Rutherford B. Hayes was the former governor of Ohio. And he was nominated because the Republicans liked him, basically, uh, as they, they felt he was a favorable candidate. Uh, now, what was going on? So let's talk a little bit about those, those guys. So uh, Samuel Tilden, being that he was a Democrat in New York, uh, one of the issues he had to deal with was the corruption of the Democratic Party, uh, particularly in New York City. Uh, and, of course, that corruption has a name, and it was Tammany Hall. Tammany Hall is, by the way, a fascinating subject. It deserves its own episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to give you a little bit of a painting of it, uh, Tammany Hall, even though it was a corrupt system, the one thing I will say was working in its favor was it was fighting to uh, acclimate um, Irish and Scottish and other immigrants into American life and give them more political power. Mm. So they were actually on the, the cause of social justice, but they were just doing it in all the wrong ways. Um, and uh, the most famous head of that organization was a guy named William Tweed, also known as Boss Tweed. Uh, Tilden actually took him on and had succeeded in getting him arrested um, for basically convicted of corruption charges and sent him to prison. So that was his legacy, is that he was willing to fight the system and uh, and clean it up, right? And uh, we can always say that the government, the establishment is corrupt, so that's a good party uh, platform to, to run on. Uh, Hayes, again, was just the party favorite uh, at that point. Um, and... He had also sworn that when he was nominated, that if he did get elected, he would only serve one term. So, uh, regardless of the situation. Some people say that and don't actually deliver on that, but we'll, we'll get to that later. Uh, now, the thing about this is that at that point in time in, in the country, America was still reeling from the Civil War. It had only ended 10 years prior. Uh, Reconstruction was still going on. Federal troops were still um, policing the South, uh, which... To Southerners was a better reminder of one we lost, and two that they weren't really, they weren't really states. I mean, they were readmitted to the Union, but they weren't because they were being. It felt like they were in a police state mentality, mm-hmm. so they felt like their liberty was still not really granted to them. And um, by this point in the South, your affiliation was essentially very closely tied to what side of the war you fought on. If you were a Republican, you more likely fought for the Union. If you were a Democrat, a Southern Democrat, I should say, you more yeah. than likely fought for the Confederacy. Um, and in general, there was a dissatisfaction with the government. Um, there was there had been numerous scandals at all levels of government, and there was this overall feeling of people wanting to to change because they saw Washington as just this cesspool of cronyism. So um, that was kind of the the sentiment that that these both were dealing with. As, as far as issues go, they were almost identical. That was the funny thing. They had pretty much they had the same views. Tilton had a better platform, a more specific platform for how to deal with them, but they were essentially the same. When it came down to the election itself, it's very interesting because um, it, at this point, it took 185 votes to secure the presidency in the Electoral College. 
And Tilden had 184. But uh, because of a split in Oregon, it was undetermined whether or not he could win. Mm. So at this point in time, I think now, if I'm, I could be wrong, but I think now uh, it is winner take all for all of the electoral votes in, in the state, in every mm-hmm. state. At this point, it was not that. So Oregon actually had two votes for Hayes and one vote for Tilden. Now, if that had been certified, um, I believe that could potentially have given him the vote he needed to win. Wow. Um, and it was almost, and the election night stats was very much in like a Dewey versus Truman situation. People believe that Tilden had won the election at that point. But as it was more important uh, then than it is now, as the Constitution states, the Senate must certify the election, must certify all the electoral votes are, are valid before they can officially name them the next president, right? And that's where things start to get very, very hairy because it was a essentially a, a clerical and constitutional nightmare. Wow. <laughs> because um, what ended up happening is Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida all sent multiple sets of tallies. Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh, That's Louisiana, not a good idea. Yeah, yeah. And again, this is the South, right? So this is, you know, might have been their way of opposing the system. Um, or maybe... Or maybe just the system was a little yeah. fragile and broken right well, now. Well, here's, uh-huh. here, here's what makes things worse. So <laughs> Louisiana and South Carolina brought two sets, and they and each set had one candidate as the winner, and the other candidate as the winner. Mm. Florida had three sets. Two of them were Hayes as the winner, and one was Tilden as the winner. And there was no legal mechanism to to determine the validity of which ones were real, which left 20 electoral votes completely uncountable, thus throwing the country into a constitutional <laughs> dilemma. Great. Um, so what they eventually started to do is they were debating uh, in Congress about what they should do. The Republicans, who were in charge of the House, were saying, well, since there's no clear, clear electoral winner at this point, we should just do what we did done before and we just elect the president but they had the 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 majority so that would have gone to Hayes. yeah the democrats who were in charge of the senate were saying no we should do our job and figure out who these are valid because of course that would have gotten tilden as the president right exactly so now (laughs) partisan politics at its absolute worst so what they eventually decided to do is in february keep in mind at this point the inauguration was in march and when it's set for march 5th of this year in february they appoint a 15 person commission if it doesn't get more complicated than this, I don't know what else. So it's uh, five members of, of the House, five members of the Senate, and five of the Supreme Court justices. Oh, God. Seven of them are Republican. Some of them are Democrat, and one is an independent. Oh, <laughs> is this a bad joke? This no, sounds like the starting I mean, of a bad joke. It sounds like joke. a bad joke, but it's like... It's, it sounds like so a burlesque this, joke, right? So it's one guy is deciding this, clearly. No, no, well, it gets even better. The Democrats th- thought that, that, that uh, David Davis, best name ever who was the independent Supreme Court justice, uh, was they thought that maybe they could sway him because he was from Illinois. And at this point in time, because U.S. senators were elected by the legislatures, the Illinois legislature elects him as the U.S. senator to Ah. Illinois, thinking, okay, maybe we can sway him that way. But because of that, he has to resign from the the commission. And they have to replace him with a Republican who is believed to be impartial. Oh no! <laughs> but it's, but he wasn't. He was in favor of Hayes. So now we have eight. no really. Yeah. So we have eight. But here's the funny thing. Can we just like play yackety sax yeah. over this? Like, but here's the here's the funny thing. This commission was appointed was 
agreed upon by both houses, but it was but they are supposed to submit their report to to certify the votes to the Senate, right? And they knew that Hayes was going to eventually take the election. So what does the Senate do? They filibuster on the the uh, other events they were dealing with so that they couldn't get to the next order of business, which was get hearing the commission's results. February 26th rolls around, and finally a meeting happens between four Southern Democrats and five Ohio Republicans. We don't know what actually happened in that meeting. But what we do, what we think happened is um, uh, um, uh, a deal was brokered, which was to say that Hayes would get the presidency in exchange for uh, a rollback of some of the, of, of all the federal troops in the South, and basically kind of a weakening of the, re- the Reconstruction laws. And thus, the 20 votes went to Hayes, who won the presidency by one electoral vote. Oh. Wow. And what was the aftermath? Uh, Reconstruction eroded, and um, but true to his promise, uh, and also the contention of the election, Hayes kept it to a one-term presidency. Whew. Wow. Yeah, this election, when, when you really think about that... Probably for the best. It makes the 2000 <laughs> election not quite not feel as no. horrendous yeah. as yeah. the 76 the one. Definitely not as much of a mess. Yeah. Well, then, guys. Woo! I know. Do, do we have time? I know we're a little over time. We're a little so over time. So we don't time. technically have this time. But may I ask for time mm-hmm. to just give a couple of quick little fun presidential factoids. You've got two minutes. Go. Two minutes. The capital of Liberia was named after James Monroe. Really? Monrovia, because of his prominent support for the colonization of Liberia. Huh. Huh. Andrew Andrew Jackson taught his pet parrot to curse. Smart. (laughs) I like it. I believe that. Andrew Jackson was kind of a brash individual. William Henry Harrison had a pet billy goat, which he kept with him in the White House. Nice. Billy had a billy goat? He sure did. Uh, And James Polk promised not to seek a second term if elected. And you know what? He kept that promise. No. He was a one-term president by his own choice. Uh, Let's see here. Franklin Pierce did not uh, swear his oath uh, of office on a Bible, but rather a law book. Oh, I like that. Yeah. James Buchanan was the only president to never marry and remained a bachelor his entire life. Mm-hmm. Mm. I knew that. I think he named his first lady uh, like his mother or something. Something like that. Yeah. 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 Uh, Andrew Johnson was under strong suspicion to have been drunk during his inauguration. Good for him. <laughs> I mean, it's a stressful event. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Hayes, who we were just talking about, banned alcohol in the White House. Oh. But they think it was more so as a political ploy. ploy. Oh, because he was supporting the teetotaler movement? Exactly. Boring. Uh, James A. Garfield was ambidextrous. Hmm. Who knew? He could sign his, his all of his little vetoes and degrees and yes, all that. Yes, but like, as we now know, him. not immune to gunfire. <laughs> 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 well, he wasn't a superhero. <laughs> he could deflect with both hands. Too soon. Too soon. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, Glover or Glover? Glover? (laughs) Grover Cleveland uh, was a legal guardian to a woman he would later marry. Oh. And we're going to leave it at Yeah, he was uh, also, I think, the first president who uh, was a divorced bachelor when he was both president. 
both of his terms. Mm. And the only president, and I think we tend to say this the first time, but he's the only president to have served non-consecutively. Also had an artificial jaw. Oh. Mm-hmm. Interesting. This is one of my favorites. William McKinley was the very first president to campaign using a telephone. Hmm. Nice. Mm-hmm. Very cool. You got one more. Uh, one more. Oh, I got to make it a good one then. Um, Two minutes up. You can't. Here's a great one. Warren Harding lost the White House China in a poker game. No. Oh. Uh, <laughs> nice. Although there is some suspicion that might not be true, but I, 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 I'm going to believe that it is. Let's hope that it is. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. Shall we get into some listener feedback? Yeah, we shall. This week in listener feedback. Um, while my our email system is loading, so can I say we have to get a couple of things out of the way. For with the episodes where we had guest hosts, uh, in this case David, coming on to do the Game of Thrones episode. Or David. As we we got a couple. So first of all, if you think Trekkies are bad, Song of Ice and Fire fans, oh, oh. my God, they yeah. are very particular. What about, do we call them? Icy Hots? Like, what do we, what do we... I um, like Icy Hots. Yeah, icy I like hots. Icy Hots, yeah. Icy Hots, that's funny. Um, so, okay, so I messed up. I said Song of Fire and Ice, I'd, so I got them mixed up on the oh show. Oh, God. A couple people. But there was a couple people who were disappointed. One person actually put in the, their email that they were disappointed because they, of my interpretation of what the Red Faith was. Mm. Um, which is, by the way, up to conjecture. I think it's up to conjecture. And you can't deny that there are historical parallels either way. Sure, but I mean, if you read the books, there's some pretty there's some pretty in depth description about it that I think, you know, lends itself to that guy's argument. So yeah, okay. So yeah, uh, it was from Heather, and she basically said that you know she got a few I got a few things wrong uh, about the the religion, and I I will respectfully to say that no, you're entitled to your opinion. I won't go into the specifics of it, but. Because some of because some of them I I actually mentioned were correct in other episodes, um, but the Lord of she was basically saying that the Lord of Light was Protestant Christianity, and I was making the, the parallels to Zoroastrianism, and I think that the answer is they're probably both right. Yes, there is obviously the Protestant sect because it's a it's an opposing sect within that world, mm-hmm. but the parallels it uses for that faith and Zoroastrianism are pretty pretty obvious. So. Um, well, with made-up religions, you can take source from material from, from real religions, mm-hmm. and you don't have to be limited. You can do that a little bit here, Big, a little bit there, exactly. Yep. A little sprinkle of Christianity over here, just a little. Well, anyway, thank you, Heather, for writing Judaism. in. I appreciate. I I enjoyed reading your feedback for sure. Yeah. Um, the next one, actually, if Eric, you want to read it, it's from Keith, and it's about our Coke machine episode. It says hi, all. I just discovered your podcast a couple of months ago. My God, man. Where have you been? That was my reaction. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, really? You can just say, welcome, new listener. We're glad you're here. No. Okay. Thank you, sir. Uh, and I'm really enjoying it. Well, good. Uh, it makes my 45-minute commute fly by, and it gets me in the mood to come into work and write about history. You should have just left it off. It gets me in the mood. <laughs> gets me in the mood. Uh, since my work involves the history of radio, I do feel compelled to send a minor correction about your most recent podcast about Coca-Cola. At one point, while discussing the creation of Coke as a national brand, one of you, names omitted to protect the innocent, that's (laughs) funny, said, by 1914, you now have radio. That was me. I'll just, yeah, (laughs) I I tend to be the person who misspeaks the most on the podcast, and that's fine. I'll, I'll accept it. Mea culpa go 
while on its while on its face this statement is true, it doesn't make sense in the context of building a national brand. It wasn't until 1915 that an internal memo in the Macaroni Company suggested selling radio music boxes for home entertainment use. Before this radio was largely confined Marconi. to am- he said Macaroni Marconi. Well, I'm dyslexic, so I read it as macaroni, and we're going to keep it with macaroni company. I like macaroni. <laughs> Marconi. <laughs> I, read it, I read it to myself while I was doing that. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. What the hell is the macaroni company? Uh, but I went with it, and we had fun. So Commit to it. I, I'm committed. <laughs> In, <laughs> in 1919, the first college radio station opened at the University of Wisconsin, but commercial radio didn't really begin broadcasting until 1920. The first scheduled commercial radio broadcast is generally considered to be the Harding Cox election returns of 19, or sorry, of uh, November 2nd, 1920. The government began broadcasting on the National Bureau of Standards test station WWV the same year. Before this, the only real broadcasts that were by were by naval stations, which uh, call letters NAA, which broadcast time and weather reports, along with limited music and news, but no commercials. Holy crap, that sounds awesome. Can we yeah. just get that now, please? Thanks. Uh, I'm relying on you, Keith. Uh, these NAA broadcasts began in 1913 in Arlington, Virginia, but didn't reach around the country and didn't include advertising. They were actually intended for ships, but became popular with farmers who appreciated the weather updates as much as sailors did. Of course, radio played an important role in World War I, but all non-government broadcasts in the United States were silenced during the war for fear of espionage. After the war, servicemen coming home with radio experience moved into broadcasting, and the commercial side of the business began to boom. It was a mirror er- minor error, but I do feel I should mention it in the spirit of historical accuracy. Keep up the good work, and thanks for everything. Yeah. And that is your bonus episode tonight, ladies and gentlemen, which is right? the history of yeah. radio brought to us by Keith. Yeah. Uh, hey, Keith. That was great. That was Keith, that was you. awesome. I do agree with you. Uh, I got the year. I, I think my point was still valid, but it, I should have pushed it forward about, about another five or ten years from the date that, date that I mentioned so you, um, you 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 explained the whole point, which was Coke was moving into advertising in a big way. Indeed. Good. Awesome. All you right. You were a little premature. It was a little premature. It's a little bit. Um, first off, listeners, thank you for the feedback. We ran out of time to listen to the voicemail, but we kind of got the gist of it. So yeah. we have more episodes. We can. That's, that's fine. fine. Sarah, please tell our listeners how they can become a feedbacker. Yeah, if you guys want to correct anything that we say on the podcast, you can do so by going to nerdonomy.com, clicking that Talk to Us button. 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 <laughs> and talk just put to attention to Brian, because I tend to make the most mistakes. Just send it to Brian's Corrections at nerdonomy.com and just press that button. <laughs> that Talk to Us button. Um, <laughs> talk to Us button. Oh, there's a button. How quaint. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a very large button, but it gets the job done. Um, or you can hit us up on social media. We're at Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Try not to misspeak on anything anymore. It's the tradition. It's, it's tradition. the anatomy tradition with the macaroni <laughs> company. <laughs> um, but uh, if you, the most important thing that you guys can do is uh, give us a review on iTunes, actually. Um, the more reviews that we get, the better it will boost us in searchability. So um, mm. if you can do that, that would be awesome and help spread the word of nerd like a bird turd. Indeed. And a special thank you to our listeners that after four years, we're still at a four and a half star rating 
uh, is really, really awesome. And we've been at a four and a half star that whole time. Yeah. So thank you guys. Thank you for being honest. And thank you for thinking we're awesome. Because we are. Let's just be honest here. And thank you for correcting us when we're wrong. Exactly. Because that makes us more awesome. The humility to admit when we're wrong Mm -hmm. and when listeners are (laughs) 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 And again, you can direct your comments to Brian Moriarty, hate mail. Not like we think that any of our listeners are assholes. (laughs) No, no, not not, not this episode. Not this episode. (laughs) Past episodes. Yeah, past episodes and mostly on the other podcast. But, you know, whatever. All right, before we're done, I do have to send a special shout out to the Pennsylvania Macaroni Company. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you very much. They're uh, an Italian grocery store who was featured prominently at the end of this episode. And I want to thank you for your encouragement. (laughs) Uh, Well, on that note, ladies and gentlemen, it is that time. So until we meet again... Stay nerdy and tune into our next exciting Halloween-themed episode. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Bye. Macaroni. Goodbye. You know, Brian, I really don't appreciate it when you come in here and you're just trying to say that you Oh, that, you don't appreciate it? No, I do not no. appreciate it. And I uh-huh. just think that you're like, you just completely more, more steamroll everybody in crooked here. Crooked Sarah just keeps giving her lies. Oh, Crooked Sarah, here we go again. You know, I really just, I cannot stand that you just have to come in here, you steamroll everybody and you say, Can no, I say something? Idea- no! no! I mean, the doctor said it was crooked. <laughs> <laughs>